You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. In India, I met farmers whose crops have been literally washed away by historic flooding. In America, I have witnessed unprecedented droughts in California. In Greenland and in the Arctic, I was astonished to see that ancient glaciers are rapidly disappearing well ahead of scientific predictions. All that I have seen and learned on my journey has absolutely terrified me. So the question now is whether we will have the courage to act before it's too late. And how we answer will have a profound impact on the world that we leave behind, not just to you, but to your children and to your grandchildren. As a president, as a father, and as an American, I'm here to say we need to act. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. G'day, this is Jesse. Jesse, where, where, where's Angie? Oh, where's I, Angie? Wasn't she supposed to show up? Is she not here? <laughs> Angie is on vacation. Oh. She, yeah, she's going to Boston to see family. Oh, nice. So uh, she deserves it. I mean, just got done with her PhD, you know, two little kids. So Everybody needs a holiday. Yeah, her and John have uh, taken the family to Boston. I was like, don't worry about it. I've got an okay stand-in, I think. <laughs> we'll see we'll see this is a test this is a test yeah. for sure if i don't get a call back we'll know how it went yeah this is the audition no actually <laughs> uh, this is jesse golden if you haven't heard episode 18 with the okapi conservation you need to listen to that jesse is an awesome angie jr or you know <laughs> she's a I'll little bit that. better I'll looking than you <laughs> oh no doubt. no doubt better education yeah. I mean, no no yeah, hey yeah. you're pretty educated you've been all around i do all right i do all right yeah 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 your your interview was still fascinating to me with theo copy so oh, thank you yeah so jesse's standing in this week and we're just uh gonna record our weekly news and what's in conservation so 
Just to start off and jump right into this, this one I've been just itching to talk about. Ooh. And I know, I know. Anybody that has taken my classes, anybody that gets me going with the topic of cloning knows I want to clone a mammoth. Like I have, ever since I left my PhD program at Texas A&M, where I had worked with the the people that were doing all the big cloning, I have pet Dewey the deer, who was the first cloned deer. <laughs> wow. You know, yeah, at the wildlife center there, I, you know, have had private conversations with these gentlemen and, and women. Um, one of the, the major horse cloners was one of my big advisors. Oh, cool. So I, I, I have a lot of experience with cloning. Mm. And so I had always talked about, whenever we talked about artificial reproductive techniques, that cloning, and I just love elephants, obviously. And so I thought cloning a mammoth would just be like the apex of my career if I could somehow edge my way into that project. Now, that all changed years ago when I really started jumping into what is going on in the environment, species in crisis, has led to this podcast, other things that I've been doing, my you know elephant work that we were doing, the rhino stuff that Angie was involved with, you know, all that stuff. Mm. I have really changed my opinion, Jesse. Like, really? Huge. I think cloning a mammoth is an incredible waste of money, and and I want to explain why. Okay. Okay. So, first, this cloning project, what made the news is the headline in the Smithsonian.com is, Can Bringing Back Mammoths Help Stop Climate Change? And for the listeners, I'll, you know, all this stuff's in the show notes, so you can go look it up and read it. So, this project has two goals. One is securing an alternative future for Asian elephants. Okay. Two is combat global warming. Really? Yes. Yes. Those are two very different things. Yeah. And again, this could turn into an hour, but let me just really as fast as I can. Cloning is highly inefficient. All right. It, It still is. It's not natural, so we actually fail way more times uh, than we're successful. The last paper I saw that actually had a a decent success rate, I think, they started with 400 oocytes. They cloned them. They had 160 embryos in a Petri dish, you know, little cells Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. a Petri dish. They transferred those. Only two live births. Wow. So starting with 400, you get two. Wow. So really, really inefficient. This was in macaque monkeys, a study out of China. Mm -hmm. Seeing the same thing. I mean, even when we do some of the easier reproductive techniques, we fail a lot. So there's a lot of hurdles for this. I'm very curious to see how they, they, they're going to benefit Asian elephants because, Jesse, let me tell you. Okay. They, when I did this, I was like, okay, well, this could help elephants too because you're going to pour all this money into developing embryo transfer, you know, how to collect these bull elephants, how to collect oocytes from the cows. Well, of course, yeah. All of these things that would help benefit you know, the elephants under human care that are like the emergency population for the mm-hmm, ones in the mm-hmm. wild. No, because it's, it's so hard to, to house elephants, which you, you could relate to. Oh yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's with, huge. With your career. Yeah. And so the, instead of, okay, we're going to pour money into elephant, uh, re- reproductive techniques, we're going to use an artificial womb. What? So, yes. Artificial wombs. <laughs> Yes. They, some scientists have, have been doing this. Now, now I forgot to backtrack. These are scientists out of Harvard, by the way. All right. So this isn't... No, this is yeah, legit stuff. Some, yeah. Yes. This isn't some rinky-dink college, you know, off somewhere in the world. This is Harvard University, the number one college in the world, or university in the world. Mm. 
So these are some of the, the, the top scientists in the world. And, and I'll tell you why they're using artificial wombs because they can't figure out how to sink elephant, female elephants. They don't have the money to house hundreds and hundreds of female elephants. Yeah. You know, the acreage, the, the public outcry that would happen with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're, they're just putting a lot of political spin on it. Oh, we're going to pour money into Asian elephant, you know, conservation, blah, 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 because they're the most endangered and only 40,000 of them left. So I think that's a, a big political spin or, you know, conservation politics. Then the second one, I just really, I'm like, seriously, guys and gals that are on this project, do you really think cloning mammoths is going to help save us from climate change? Like, seriously? I mean, they say that cows are one of the greatest sources of methane that's potentially causing <laughs> uh, climate yeah. change. How, how is bringing more elephants in this world um, yeah. go, going yeah. to, to affect it? Yeah. Yeah. And they're not even, you know, and you say the elephant it, it triggered. It's not even a true clone. They're, they're doing uh, CRISPR. They're gene editing. They're making a hybrid. Oh, wow. They're not even making, they're not, yeah. This is Jurassic like, Park the, stuff then. It is totally. Oh, this wow. is not, yeah, this is not a true cloning. This is not taking el- uh, mammoth cells, which we have, have found mammoth carcasses in the tundra, but just the DNA is d- too much degraded that they can't use it to clone. Oh, of course. Anyways, yeah, I've actually seen one of those. They're, it's incredible. Yeah. 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 So they're saying, Oh, well, by bringing back the mammoths as they migrate across the tundra, they're going to punch these big holes in the ice and keep the permafrost colder. I'm like, mm. come on. Like, really, you're trying to hoodwink the public. Let's just be honest. It just is doing such a disservice to science. It just really makes me angry. Two, so I did, I ran some numbers, Jesse. I, okay. I'm a numbers guy sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> do you have an idea of how many square miles there are of tundra in the, on earth? Oh, geez. Um, you you're talking guess. like all of Russia, like most of Canada, Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. I mean, Little tiny Yellowstone's just a million acres, and it's got to yeah, be yeah. like hundreds of millions of acres. Uh, yeah, I mean, four and a half million square and miles. And oh, okay. Jeez. Square miles. Square miles. Yeah. Square miles. Or 11 and a half million square kilometers. So wow. I was like, okay, well, what's the greatest territory of any elephant? And they estimated there was, uh, in Africa, in the desert, 11,000 square kilometers, but most elephants go like 500 to 1,000 square kilometers. Mm-hmm. So I roughly said, okay, you would need at least 10,000 mammoths, at least, to have any sort of impact of coverage. That's a lot and, of artificial wombs right there. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a lot. And you're talking almost a two-year gestation. So, yep. you know, it just – it. I, I love science. I think science needs to push the boundaries. I think we need to develop some of this stuff. We need to investigate some of this stuff. To me, this is nothing but fundraising talking points. There's no reality here, and it really is doing a disservice to elephants and mm. other conservation efforts. Because, Jesse, do you know how many trees we lose every minute? No idea. Okay. So, real quick, to, to wrap this story up and why it kind of gets me fired up. They estimate there's 1.7 trillion tons of carbon in the permafrost. Wow. So, with global warming, yes, it is a huge concern. Huge concern mm-hmm. that when, as that thaws, that carbon's getting dumped in the atmosphere. But we lose 56,000 trees every minute. And they, they wow. per year, about sequester 50 pounds of carbon. Mm-hmm. So every minute we're losing about 2.8 million tons of carbon sink with deforestation. Okay. 
so I would I would say, you know what? Take all that money that you're going to pour into cloning the mammoth, the hundred million, two hundred million, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and put it into planting trees. Put it put it into you know conserving areas around the earth that need protection. Don't spend money down this rabbit hole just so you can do what, what was it? Jurassic Park, right? What did, oh, yeah, what did he yeah. say? It, it's you asked if you could, you didn't ask if you should. Oh yes, Malcolm's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, I I could go on this rant forever. I still love the idea of cloning a mammoth, but again, it's a waste of money. It's a complete well, waste of money. Chris, what about these other de-extinction projects that are going on? It's not just mammoths that people are trying to bring back, but it's like the passenger pigeon in the eastern U.S. It's the thylacine mm-hmm. and the Tasmanian tiger in Australia. Um, do these projects have merit too? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, you know, you think about it, like the Tasmanian tiger went, went extinct, what, a hundred years ago? Passenger yep, just pigeons. About, yep. Yeah, passenger pigeons similar, you know, uh, the thirties, 1920s and thirties. Mm-hmm. So these are species that recently went extinct. They were obviously human caused. Mammoths were still, humans, I think, had an impact on them, but there's still no a lot doubt. of debate. You know, uh, great multiple m- factors, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think it, you would have to look at it case by case and say, how would this benefit the ecology? You mm. know, we, we just talked about bringing back wolves to Yellowstone and has yes. completely rehabilitated, you know, the river system there has benefited other species. So if we brought back, say, the Tasmanian tiger, how many, what, what's Australia facing right now? Uh, facing, um, yeah. like, like in terms of bringing them back. Yeah. Like, would it benefit? Like, would, would it you, benefit would you, them? Yeah. Uh, like yeah there's species? definitely a niche that's missing because the Tasmanian yeah. tiger, they were uh, considered, uh, a type of animal that went around in and kept all the wallaby all right. and, and smaller mammal, um, populations in check. Uh, but yeah, at the moment, um, like if you considered their extinction rate, Australia has the mm-hmm. highest extinction rate for mammals within the world. Um, right. and it's uh, 15, 20% of their current mammals that are facing extinction. And yeah, there, there's a lot of things that you could consider. Would it be better to spend all that money to get the rest of the mammals back on track and recovering right. before Which you bring right. back, yeah. bring back uh, one of your uh, recently extinct animals? Yeah. Yeah. Like I just, you know, and, and we have brought back something from extinction, the Pyruvian ibex. Mm-hmm. So that's the only animal we've ever brought back from extinction. And it, it was early, two th- again, during this cloning craze. I think the paper was published in 2006 or 2007. They, and it just went extinct like five years. So okay. they, they brought, they had tissue, used surrogate goats, and it was born and it lived for 15 minutes and died mm. because cloning is still very, very inefficient. So, we have done it. I, I agree with you. I think it's an incredibly waste of money. I don't think that's the way to go. I think we need to protect and fight for what we have left that's living, breathing, you know, right now. Oh, so, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you find? What was one of the stories you, you, you found this week? Well, I uh, I was very much, um, how would you say, inspired uh, right. by, by the story about cloning mammoths. And I thought, oh, let's talk about some of the recovery efforts that are going on. And yep. just a couple weeks ago, the... Uh, U.S. Department of Interior announced that they're moving ahead with a plan to reintroduce more grizzly bears into the North Cascades National Park. Um, good news. Oh, yeah, it's really good news, um, except the locals aren't happy. They're not yeah, happy at of all. course. Never uh, when, it, when it comes to reintroducing predators back into local ecology, the first thing people say is, what about my farm? 
What about mm-hmm. my children? Um, mm-hmm. This is going to cost me a lot of money. And so a little bit of a backtrack. Um, we're talking about grizzly bears here. They were put on the endangered species list back in 1975, and they're labeled as threatened. And with what's been going on with the Endangered Species Act politically over the last 10, 15 years, environmentalists, politicians, anybody involved with recovery efforts are mm-hmm. realized that we're putting heaps of species onto this list, but mm-hmm. we're not really taking anything off. And mm-hmm. so the politicians are wondering, you know, is this is costing more money. Why aren't these recovery programs working? And so they've really developed, delved into it and realized some of these projects have stalled, uh, one, because of uh, public opinion, two, because of changes in administrations. And there's some really easy species that we could just recover and, and just mm-hmm. tick off the list. And grizzly bears is one of those. Uh, they've mm-hmm. recovered in much of their um, home ranges within the lower 48 states. But the North Cascades is one of the last parts of the lower 48 uh, that don't really have grizzly bears. There's a few there, but they're not really breeding and they're slowly dying out. They've got really slow reproductive rates. So the idea is if we take some bears from local areas, put them back into these mountains, then this population can recover and stabilize. And grizzly bears uh, would be able to live in all the wild places that we have left in the Western U.S. No, it's interesting because like we just said, the the reintroducing the wolves in Yellowstone, right, has had a, yeah, a, yeah. a very positive and- effect. All the reintroduction efforts in Yellowstone have been extremely successful. Uh, there have been ecological changes that scientists didn't realize were going to happen that did, and they're all quite positive. Mm-hmm. And so it's about making this happen in other places to make um, not only our population, wildlife populations healthy, but our forest healthy. And if our forests are healthy, then our air is clean and our water is clean, and that helps provide for our populations. Yeah, and beavers came back and, and other species. Mm-hmm, Let me mm-hmm. ask you your opinion, because you traveled a lot and been to yep. a lot of different places. So yep. last week we talked about this idea, and I know you and I brought, I brought it up to you the other day, I think I did, as far as the umbrella species concept. Yes, and yes. So what do you think? I mean, because we talked about it in the okapi, right? So the okapi, you know. Yeah, okapi is, is an umbrella species. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it is a, from my standpoint, it is quite a valid thing to do, but it depends on how you go about it. So if you use this iconic animal as an umbrella, as, as a flagship species to promote the conservation of an area, mm-hmm. if you just protect the land and you put the name on it, then in that act itself, you're going to be protecting heaps of different wildlife and, and plants within that area. However, if you're going to take that land that you've preserved and manage it specifically for that species, there are animals that are going to get left out. Uh, because within nature, uh, there's no balance. Right. It's always a struggle between one species and the next. And so if you give one species an advantage in order to survive and, and, and build up numbers – other species inherently are are going to become disadvantaged by that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some of the studies I've read going back to the 90s was was showing that if you focused on rhino conservation in the deserts of Namibia, it really doesn't serve to help all of the other species in the area. It only helps to serve rhinos and some other species that would benefit from that type of management. Right. Um, so it is valid in some ways, and it's um, if you, I guess, I guess it's a spectrum really. If right. you put all yeah. your efforts into that one species. You're, you're going to have problems uh, ecologically. But if right. you just manage the ecosystem and just put that name on there saying, you know, we're preserving this area for this animal and we're just going to manage the whole ecosystem, um, that has a lot more merit. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, it, you know, and it, it's discussions that we need to have, 
you oh, know, of amongst scientists and conservation experts around the world and say what works because what works in one part doesn't necessarily work in another part, you know, of the world. So oh, indeed, yeah, 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 yeah. So okay, second story number two. This one I am excited and is perfect timing with you. And uh-huh. that, that is, and we just had it a few weeks ago, and I know you know that, and it was, you, the, you're the one that directed me towards, uh, Dr. Getz, so thank you. Mm-hmm, no worries. We, we have our own spe, or the proposing, we have our own species of blue whale off the coast of New Zealand. Pretty cool, eh? I know! <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah, we just covered this, I just talked to Kim a couple weeks ago, and now it just comes out that through genetic testing, apparently, we have a species of blue whale, now they're, they're similar to the pygmy blues because that's what they thought. And mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. Dr. Torres from Oregon State. So I'm sure she's working with Dr. Getz, but they've identified 151 different blue whales off New Zealand. They estimate the population of blue whales off our coasts are about 718. Oh wow. And through genetic testing, they, they believe this is its own species of blue whale. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so, so that, that really so, solidifies New Zealand as one of the bio, biodiverse marine regions of the world. Oh, it's incredible, you know. And you yep. just—I mean, I know we're going to get to it in a minute, but I know you just got back from a trip. You went mm-hmm. out a few, you know, what is like two months ago, the albatross trip. Yeah, yep. went out to the pelagic <laughs> bird trip. Yeah, yeah, always love those boat trips. Yep. <laughs> but this is what Taranaki, the Taranaki bite. Yeah, so uh, Taranaki is this peninsula that sticks out of the. Um, it's a small peninsula, sticks out of the North Island, and all of the area geologically uh, developed from this one volcano, uh, Taranaki, mm-hmm. that's right in the middle. Um, it's actually been uh, a sit-in for Mount um, Fuji for, for many Japanese films right. uh, that were filmed in New Zealand. And oh, wow. um, yeah, this whole area is quite, um, it's not just geologically diverse, but it's um, biologically diverse. Mm-hmm. And the currents are quite different between the South Bight, which is the south part of the area, and the North Bight, which is the other one. Uh, the North Bight deals more with the Tasman Sea, which right now today in New Zealand, we're experiencing uh, quite a bit of weather fluctuations because there's yeah. a huge uh, low pressure system in the Tasman yeah. Sea that's giving us heaps of wonderful winter weather. It's um, cold. And then it's basically, it's cold and it's wet and the yeah. South Island's full of snow. Yeah. All the ski resorts are happy about this. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Early seasons. But the south part of this area, uh, this flows straight into the Cook Strait, um, mm-hmm. which is what separates the North Island from the South Island. It's a very fast-moving stream of water that goes through there. And oftentimes, it was a great place back when the whaling industry was happening. There were heaps of whales mm-hmm. always moving through there, so it was easy for whalers to get their harvests. Um, mm-hmm. And there's heaps of other wildlife out there, uh, such as albatross and prions and shearwaters, that basically they do quite well because there's so much life within this area in terms of plankton right. and fish and things like that. And just showing that there's actually a population of resident blue whales. We always thought they were migratory, but mm-hmm. now that we realize there's residents there, uh, that shows how much more diverse this area is and how much life it can really support if it can support a population of the world's largest animal. And now you, and when you were backpacking through New Zealand, you worked mm-hmm. for a, a sightseeing tour, right? Yeah, I worked for an ecotourism company called uh, right. Encounter Kaikoura. Uh, it was down off the uh, Kaikoura Peninsula on the South Island. And this was also one of New Zealand's great um, food-rich areas. It was has great seafood. It's got great bird life. It has resident sperm whales, and it has um, resident uh, endemic dolphins as well. 
And yeah. so it's a great spot for ecotourism. It was the spot for whale watching when whale watching first started as an industry in New Zealand. And it's, it's still ever growing because of all of this attraction to the sea life there. Right. And I never asked you, do you have you seen a blue whale out there or? Uh, the closest I've seen to a blue whale is potentially the, um, the blowing spout of a whale. Right. Um, and it wasn't actually down in Kaikoura. It was, um, I didn't spend so much time on the boats. I spent a lot of time on the land, but I'd hear on the radio, we got blue whales out today. Oh, uh, yeah, I never get to see one, but yeah, the closest yeah. I got to see was actually up in Northland, up on the North okay. Island, uh, okay. out on an albatross boat up there. And yeah, we saw this huge spout way off in the distance. Oh. And we thought that the only whale that would have a spout that big so yeah. far away had to have been a blue whale. And it was right yeah, up the next stories. Yeah, it was right next to the coast too. So, uh, yeah, hard to yeah. port, hard to port. Yeah, no. essentially, we were way out at sea, and the whale was all the way next to the coast. We're like, we're yeah. the wrong place. I know. Oh, I want to go see them. That is that is awesome. Yeah, that that was cool. But yeah, this research right here has huge implications. Uh, potentially, a whale watching industry could pop up in this part of New Zealand. That's actually. Um, it doesn't get a lot of focus tourism wise. There's just a lot of farmers there, particularly dairy farmers. And mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. it'd be, it leaves space for a new industry, really. I know all my friends in the States are like, Oh, do you see sheep all the time? I'm like, no, <laughs> I see cows everywhere. Lots of cows. <laughs> so yeah. So what else did you find this week? What did you, uh, yeah, the blue whales? Oh. Really, that was awesome. Um, yeah. So the other thing I found this week. So you mentioned I've done a bit of traveling. I recently got back from New Caledonia, where I spent 10 mm-hmm. days there. And on the offshore islands, the loyalty islands, what they call, there's actually a small vanilla industry. Oh, yeah. And I love vanilla. I love vanilla ice cream and anything yeah, with too. vanilla in it. Yeah. And so they were selling some, and I'm like, oh, I can take some proper vanilla beans back home, mm-hmm. uh, my little souvenir from New Caledonia. Um, and when I got home, because I had been exposed to what it takes to farm vanilla and how great mm-hmm. of a industry it is for new, for those parts of New Caledonia, I came mm-hmm. across this article called Madagascar's Vanilla Wars. Uh, it's written oh, by yeah. The Guardian. It's actually back from March, so it's a bit old, but it's still quite relevant. And essentially what's happening is that vanilla prices have skyrocketed. Uh-huh. Uh, just a few years ago, they're about uh, $50 per kilogram, uh, which is roughly about $30 per pound. And, uh, it's driven up to $500, $600 per kilogram. Wow. Um, just, wow. just for vanilla. And so because of the price that have gone up, that gangs have shown up within these Madagascar communities to steal the vanilla bean. Um, essentially it's, it's become more valuable than some, uh, uh valuable minerals such as silver. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why these prices are going up, uh, one, a lot of companies have renewed their interest in using natural vanilla over artificial. Um, within the whole world, only 1% of all the vanilla that's used is natural. The rest of it's huh. artificial. Okay. And okay. the artificial vanilla comes from um, pine bark. It comes from different plant sources. It even comes from petroleum. Um huh. And Great. so this renewed, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this renewed interest in using natural vanilla has skyrocketed the prices. And not only that, but Madagascar itself has been basically unstabilized. This government hasn't really functioned well for the last 10 years. Mm. And so there's poorly regu- regulated markets. There's not, there's a lot of corrupt local leaders. And, uh, yeah, this violence has actually become a product of that. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
Uh, it's like the whole, you know, and, and I don't even want to go here, but with the poaching crisis in Africa, armed it's gangs. The ex- it's the exact yeah. same. They're using those same, um, basically marketing networks to, tactics, to, yeah. yeah, they use the same tactics. They use the same networks to push the money through to not only, um, push money through for the vanilla trade, but actually poach some of the native wildlife in Madagascar and actually move rosewood, which is mm-hmm. often poached in Madagascar as well. Madagascar, I mean, we got to, you know, this podcast, we have to focus more on Madagascar and there's some, so many incredible species there, but there is a crisis hotspot in the world. I mean, just decimating the natural landscape, right? I mean, yeah. So 90% of Madagascar's original habitat has basically disappeared, right? Um, they have just as much biodiversity as New Zealand does, as New Caledonia. Mm-hmm. And they've actually, the southern part of Madagascar, which is a lot of dry lands where there's a lot of unique diversity down there in terms of uh, types of lemurs and reptiles that can be found. Uh, it's been in a drought since 2013, and it's affecting oh, over a million people that, that can't yeah. feed themselves. Yeah, I mean, deforestation and just, you know, knocking back the all the habitat. I think it's the, oh, it's the, the lemur that has the blue eyes, black that's like critically endangered. I think there's like less than a hundred of them left in the world. So yeah, they're just, it's a bad hotspot. So what was the coolest thing you saw in New Caledonia as far as species? Oh, wow. Um, so I went to New Caledonia for its bird life to find some geckos. They have the largest geckos in the world in New Caledonia and to see snakes. We don't have oh, any yeah. snakes in New Zealand. It's been a while since nope. I've seen one. Uh, yeah. In terms of the coolest, um, there's this beautiful parakeet called the horned parakeet. Uh, they've got these uh, couple feathers on the top of their head that look like horns when it's in silhouette. Uh, absolutely beautiful, fascinating birds. Saw the world's largest flighted pigeon. Uh, it sounds like mm. a blimp when it's flying overhead. It makes <laughs> this really cool booming drum beat uh, that yeah. the entire forest is full of. There's also this very strange bird. There's nothing else like it in the world. It's called a kagu. Uh-huh. Um, for, our, for our American listeners, uh, they're just over a foot tall. Really oh. strange birds. They live in family groups. They're, they've got these huge, um, crest of feathers coming off their head. They're completely gray. They've got this reddish orange beak and big, huge feet that they use to claw through the dirt. And mm-hmm. they're flightless. They're flightless. There's nothing oh, else wow. like them in the world. Um, okay. scientists have been trying to figure out where they belong taxonomically. And the closest relative they can come up with is the sun bittern, which is this, um, smallish, medium sized bird in South America. Um, right. So yeah, I'll that's put, probably some I'll of the coolest put, wildlife I've seen. There. Yeah, I'll tell the listeners. I'll I'll definitely put a picture of that on there, and then anything oh, else good, Jesse good. feels like feels like sharing. Now I know you know just really quickly, more on a personal note. So you've traveled quite a bit. You backpacked mm-hmm, across mm-hmm. Australia, New Zealand. Did it for two and a half you. years. Yep. Yeah. So where's the coolest place you've been? Wow. Um, I'd have to go back home to Florida. Florida's home. Um, yeah, yeah. the Everglades, the swamps, there's so much diversity there in terms of wildlife. Um, it's hard to say I've traveled so widely and yet I still think fondly of home. But in terms yeah. of my travels where I've gone outside of there, um, New Caledonia is up there. Uh, they yeah. have this unique environment called the Maqui. Um, mm-hmm. it's kind of similar to other Mediterranean environments. Uh, but what's mm-hmm. really unique about it is that most of the soil, most of the minerals are nickel based. 
some of the largest reserves of nickel in the entire world is found mm-hmm. in New Caledonia. And when you have these um, nutrient-poor habitats that are have high content in other types of minerals, mm-hmm. uh, that creates an opportunity for plants to um, diversify and find new ways to survive. And when the plants diversify, then the animals diversify. And there's actually plants out there that absorb some of the nickel from the soil. And a lot of plants, if you were able to take the leaves off the stem, they'd have this white, sappy fluid come out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, for similar plants in this part of New Caledonia, they have a blue sap. Oh, wow. Uh, because they're pulling nickel out of the soil. So that's an incredible place. Um, yeah, yeah. Australia itself, um, everywhere I've gone, it's, it's quite incredible, whether it's the um, the central parts of Australia around Alice Springs or the mm-hmm. far north Queensland up in the rainforest or, or the temperate forest down in Tasmania. Um, and then in terms, I've done quite a bit of snorkeling as well. I've done the Great Barrier Reef, done the Lagoon in New Caledonia. But some of the most beautiful reefs I've seen are actually here in New Zealand. It's just the, 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 the kelp forests and the rock reefs that they're all right next to each other and all the, the colors that come out of it. I've seen kelp in, in browns and yellows and pinks and purples and oranges. And it's, it's makes it so much more colorful than you'd think a coral reef is. Right. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, I mean, and you've been obviously way around more New Zealand than I have so far, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I like, I, New Zealand has just been taking my breath away every time we oh, go good. out to a, yeah. to a new place and go hiking or, you know, and I, and I throw some pictures up on Instagram now and Facebook, whatnot. I, you know, I, I would say British Columbia is probably still my favorite place. I mean, oh, Florida, good. yeah, is amazing. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, British Columbia, my goodness, uh, you know, Vancouver Island, I just, Gorgeous, gorgeous in the summer. Mm, <laughs> Most yeah. of the year, it's like what it is today here in New Zealand. You know, overcast and cold and wet. Mm. But oh, in the summer, it just in the in the mountains and oh yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. All right, so feel good story of the week that I found is I want to give a shout out and and I would love and I should probably I don't know if I could but try to interview this young chap. It's Hunter Mitchell from South Africa. Mm-hmm. So here, here's an 11 year old. He personally read about rhinos, loves rhinos. So he started fundraising. He raised over 200,000 Rand for the rhino orphanage there, which maybe that's where Angie went. She always said if she disappears, that's where she'll be. The rhino <laughs> orphanage. <laughs> She's like, if you, if you ever want to know where I am and I'm missing, that's where I'm be. So maybe we'll have to go down there and find her. It's, it's probably are, called the Boston rhino orphanage. Yeah. So she's, she's telling you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But oh my goodness, this 11 year old kid making that's a awesome. difference for yeah, rhinos. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So shout out to him. Like just awesome. amazing, amazing. Uh, it's great to hear those stories where people, find what they can do within their own means and do their little part to, to make yeah, the world a better yeah. place. It, it really yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah. And that's the whole point of this podcast is just, you know, I know everybody's got their careers, busy lives, but we do little tips each week. You start doing those. You're making a huge difference. You know, you may not be camping out in the middle of New Zealand, you know, trying to save, you know, a bat species or something like that. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. You know, by doing your effort in conservation, you're making a huge impact to the planet. So, oh, totally. You know, Can yeah, I tell you a little effort. bit about a project I'm doing this winter uh, for conservation? Yeah, that'd be great. Yep. Yeah, that'd be great. So, um, my my girlfriend and I, we have decided that we've got this little backyard behind our house, and we're going to tear up most of the lawn. We're just going to get rid of it. 
Oh. And in its place, we're putting in a vegetable garden. We're putting yeah. in a wildflower garden because um, yeah. we'll have better vegetables if we have more bees in the backyard. And then right. in the back half, we'll all be native plants so we can have the local That's, bird life visit. It drives me crazy. The, it, yeah, you're, because this idea of the perfect manicured lawn mm-hmm. that we you know see around the world because in New Zealand, we got we got harped on for not mowing our grass enough. And I'm like, it's bad for the environment. Not only is this petrol machine bad. I tried the push mower and it just doesn't work. (laughs) I tried. I tried. And we did. And we got in our, you know, our our landlords got a little upset that we weren't uh, mowing the grass enough. So it's just, yeah. And here's the thing in New Zealand. They they just, they constantly mow their lawns and it's terrible for the environment. Yeah. It's expensive too. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we can make some difference. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, Jesse. So the, this new part of this format is a new species of the week. And so I looked and I found this amazing creature. Mm-hmm. And in honor of my wife who dragged me to New Zealand so she could do bee research, mm-hmm. they have discovered what is called the emoji bee. Um, emoji so, bee? Emoji bee. This thing is so cool. And I'm going to put the, I'll definitely put it on the show notes. What, what, what do you mean by emoji? Okay, so on its back, it's got, it's like an emoji, a smiling emoji. It's got two dots and a line underneath that looks like a smile. No way. And, yeah. Oh, wow. And so <laughs> this is, it's Epilus Gibsy. Okay. And yeah, so this is named after Jason Gibbs from the University of Manitoba. He's uh-huh. a, an assistant professor of entomology. He just discovered this a few weeks ago and it just came out in the news the last couple of days. And so he was out collecting insects, and lo and behold, they found this new bee. Wow. And it's really cool. It kind of looks like a wasp, but it's a bee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in it, he says, so it's, he, he's quoted as saying, like the cuckoo bird, which uses the nests of other birds to lay its eggs, yes. this bee uses the nests of others. Whoa. So, it's yeah, a brood so parasite. Sure That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was really cool. Like, I was just... All right, in honor of my wife, there we go. There's this really cool bee they just discovered. So so that's what I found. Did you find any new species this week? Um, I think I went a little bit overboard. Um, just yeah. the other day, there's a university in New York, uh, SUNY ESF, which is the College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Uh, mm-hmm. Apparently, every year, they come up with a top 10 list of new species. And they oh, release cool. their okay. top 10 list of new species for 2018. Uh, we can post, post this on the uh, website, but just a, a okay. brief list of what it is. Um, there is uh, a protozoa that was discovered in an aquarium <laughs> in San Diego uh, that was new to right. science. Uh, there is a new species of tree that was discovered in the Atlantic forest of Brazil. Which is crazy because I, you know, I've reading some books on the mass extinction. Mm-hmm. There are so many species of trees that we have never discovered. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yet, you know, that there's so many different out there that it's – sorry, I didn't mean to, to oh, butt no, in. Oh, but- no, no. It's, it's, it's incredible. It- this is a tree that's 130 feet in height and has just wow. now been determined that it's a distinct species. So yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's quite incredible. And, yeah, and- it's like I, – I was going to say the, the book I was reading, I was talking about how – they're finding all these different species at different layers of um, elevation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, yep. And with climate change, as places get warmer, some of these trees are dying off. And so we haven't been able to discover them yet. Or some are migrating. So that was kind of the – That's the, true the as well. But anyways, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, let's see what else we've got here. We've got an amphipod found in the Antarctic Ocean. 
Um, its name is uh, Epimeria Quasimodo. Uh, oh, it was dude. named after Victor yeah, Hugo's awesome. character Quasimodo from The Hunchback okay. of Notre Dame. And the reference is because this amphipod has somewhat of a hunched back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there is a baffling beetle that was discovered in Costa Rica. Uh, it references the newest member of the great ape family, the Tapanuli orangutan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a snailfish called uh, Spheris snailfish. It's the deepest fish of the sea. That's its tagline. Found in the Mariana Trench in the Western Pacific. A new type of flower in Japan uh, that is heterotrophic. So just a little bit of science here. Um, So most plants are autotrophic, so which means that they create their own food. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a heterotrophic plant, which means it uh, consumes other organisms. Um, So in the case of this plant, as as the article reads, the plant uh, is symbiotic with a fungus in which it gets its nutrition from. So the nutri- the fungus uh, pulls all of the nutrition from whatever it is decomposing, and, and the okay. plant gets its nutrition from this fungus. So that's actually really, really cool. Uh, there's also volcanic bacterium from the Canary Islands. Um, here's an interesting one. This is a new prehistoric animal. It's not actually mm-hmm. alive. It's extinct now. But it's a new type of marsupial lion from Australia. Um, huh. If you've ever heard of the legend of the drop bear, it's this this idea that there's this deranged carnivorous koala that lives out in the um, <laughs> the Australian bush. But in reality, there was an animal that was yeah. just like this drop bear. It was called the marsupial lion. It would climb up trees. It would wait for some prey to come wandering through the woodlands. It would fall out of the tree and attack its prey. Oh, gosh. And so now they found uh, a new species of marsupial lion. So now there's two. Uh, okay. There's also the last one is a cave beetle from China. Uh, so there's oh, quite yeah. a few interesting species here that have been found uh, just yeah, in 2018 alone. Um, and yeah. it's just now May. So we still have quite a bit of the year left to find. Oh, yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, each week and it's just, you know, kudos to the people out there doing this work and classifying these organisms, start studying them. The emoji bee, I think, is going to be one of my new favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to taste that, honey. Uh, <laughs> that or Quizamoto. Quizamoto is pretty cool too. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. The well, anyways, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ah, Jesse, thank you, man. Thank no you so worries. much. Ah, oh, it's been you great know, fun, Chris. We're gonna call this two chaps in New Zealand. You know, we're two two yanks down here surviving <laughs> in, in this this difficult Kiwi environment of, mm. of niceness and beauty. <laughs> yep, yep. I've adapted it's well a, to this environment, you know. Yes. Get yes, my daily yes. Vegemite and all that. Oh, God. <laughs> meat pies, Jesse. Meat pies. Oh, that's... Yeah, that tags my heart a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, cheers, mate. Thanks for uh, standing in. And, no worries. Thank uh, you. We'll talk to everybody next week. All right, well, take care. Have a great time. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.